You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Mall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC Be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Greg Steinmetz. He is the author of American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. Mr. Steinmetz is a journalist. He's an author. He's a graduate of the School of Journalism at Northwestern University. We have several of those here in Indianapolis, including the late, great Amos Brown. We really can thank you enough for coming on the podcast. It's it's an honor to talk to you. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I mentioned to you a little bit before we got started, reading your book, it is an, an, an overlooked period of American history for sure. So much was happening in Europe during this period, the late 19th century, unification of Germany, uh, how they kind of split into different camps. But when I was reading your book, I was chuckling to myself that it was like being an econ class again. And, and the two classes I took in college, I did very poorly. So please help me understand a few things with regard to this era. What does it mean to short stock? And why was that a a mechanism by which people could make money? Well, um, yeah, shorting stock is is it's simple in concept. Uh, you make money not from the price of the stock going up, but from it going down. Problem with that is it's a little like baseball where you hit a home run and the field is is infinite in length. And it's the same with shorting a stock. Uh, if you think a stock's going to fall from 100 bucks to 50, you make 50 bucks. But if the stock goes to 1,000, you lose 900. What if it goes to 2,000? What if it goes to 4,000? It can just keep going and going and going. And a lot of people who engage in short selling don't appreciate that. And we saw that come home last year to, to buy a prominent hedge fund with these meme stocks where people were shorting. Uh, what was it? Uh, GameStop, right? Uh, they, the hedge funds were shorting GameStop and all these retail investors decided, oh, uh, they're vulnerable here because they've shorted so much of it. If we buy enough of that stock, we can create what's called a short squeeze where they have to pay us whatever we demand almost to close that position and save themselves from ruin. So again, in a nutshell, it's just making money from a stock going down and Price instead of up. And is that was that legal during this time period, the late 19th century? It's it's legal now, and it was legal then. Uh, but then again, everything was legal then. Today, insider trading is illegal. Then it was legal. Pump and dump schemes where you 
you talk up a the prospects of a company to make the stock go up at the same time that you're selling it just to create buyer interest. You can't do that now. Back then you could. If you were CEO of a company, you could have a company on the side who did the printing business, uh, who supplied the steel, who uh, provided all your services, where you would get all that money. It was a way of siphoning off money from your company. You could do that now, uh, but you would have to disclose it. And no one's going to invest in a company that is only in business of enriching the CEO. But back, back then, it was legal. You anticipated my question to a certain degree, but let's chat a little bit more expansively. Describe this era. It's post-American Civil War, yet before the Spanish-American War in eighteen late 1890s. What was happening in the United States in general, and how did Wall Street and the investor slash business community interact with clearly was kind of a, a post-Civil War boom? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that happened in that period, I think, was just the transition from a, a rural agrarian society to an industrial society. And it was brand new, and politicians and the academics and, and all the other people who shaped and formed opinion, they just didn't know what to do about it. So I mentioned there was no regulation. That's because when you just had a country of farmers, you didn't need to have uh, what was uh, an elaborate regulatory apparatus to protect people from being destroyed by charlatans. Um, but what happened after the war was with industrialization, you also had the development of the railroads uh, to make it more efficient and cheaper to get stuff from places like Indiana to the East Coast. What the railroads meant for financial markets was you had to raise a lot of money. Uh, you and your friends couldn't get together, pool your capital, and build a textile factory because you, you wouldn't have enough money to do that. Uh, you needed tons of money that created the need for a financial market like Wall Street, where you could raise lots of money from the public. And that opened the door for people who saw the opportunity to cheat people by promoting uh, schemes that uh, were fraudulent, that were going nowhere. Um, but you could, you could talk up the prospects of something, sell it, make a lot of money, just like we see now with, with what happened with crypto. And Gould was very early in recognizing these possibilities, and he exploited it to its fullest extent and made a ton of money. Called your book, American Rascal. That seems to be, you know, I wouldn't say a compliment. Did you mean it as a compliment? And what would do you think Jay Gold would have thought of your title? Well, uh, Gold was a was a complicated character. The he was he was unquestionably a crook. Um, he would bribe judges. He would bribe politicians. He would do whatever it took to make money. I like to say of all the robber barons, meaning Carnegie, Rockefeller, um, those types, that he was the biggest robber of all of them. Mark Twain said that Gould was the mightiest disaster to ever befall the country because he created a model for other people who wanted to get rich um, at all costs. Uh, he showed them the roadmap of what to do. So. On the one hand, he was a crook, but on the other hand, there are a lot of things to admire about him. He worked like a dog. He was the smartest guy in the room. Um, he knew the law better than his lawyers. He knew accounting better than his accountants. He wasn't necessarily trying to cheat widows and orphans as much as he was trying to get the best of other Wall Street types who were trying to do to him the same thing that he was doing to them. He was just better at it. Uh, Thomas Edison, with whom he mentioned all the people he had encounters with, uh, Edison thought, okay, this guy's a crook, but he is really good at it, and he's really <laughs> passionate about what he's doing, and so it's hard for me to hate this guy um, just because he is so so gifted on, on different levels. So uh, would Gold like the title? No, but uh, it, it's pretty mild compared to what other people called him. <laughs>
Like I mentioned what Mark Twain <laughs> called him, New York Times likened him to Satan. Uh, other people, you know, any synonym you could think of for, for criminal and crook, they would call him. So, so Rascal's letting him off mildly. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are talking with author and journalist Greg Steinmetz. He, we are discussing his book, American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. So what exactly did he do? You mentioned bribing and all that stuff. And okay, I'm not giving him a pass on that, obviously, and neither do you in your book. But from a financial or financial market standpoint, what did Gould do that was so nefarious that caused him to be the, the target of all this opprobrium? Well, he he burst onto the scene in 1868 when he stole the Erie Railroad from Commodore Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt had the New York Central Gould, uh, and he wanted to have the Erie so he could have a monopoly across New York State, which was very important because grain came in over the Great Lakes, landed in Buffalo, went on trains, and got shipped to New York. If Vanderbilt had a monopoly on that route, he could make a lot of money. Um, there was there were some others who were in charge of the Erie at the time. Gould inserted himself in the middle of that by buying up enough votes to get himself elected to the board. And through hooker by crook, he managed to uh, uh, steal the thing from Vanderbilt. Um, and the way he did it was by bribing judges and by uh, getting the New York legislature to change the rules, uh, some of the the fine print around takeover rules in New York at the time, he bribed the lawmakers to, to change it in a way that was more favorable to him. And after a while, Vanderbilt just got sick of fighting him and said, okay, Gould, you win, but uh, there's really not much value left in the Erie because you've done your best to loot it when you were um, <laughs> taking all this money to bribe people. Uh, so, okay, I'll, I'll walk away from this. Uh, but all this was exposed and put Gould on the map as being a very sharp-elbowed uh, criminal figure. But the thing that really was his claim to fame was um, Black Friday, September 24th, 1869, when he blew up the gold market in a bid to corner gold, meaning buying as much gold as he possibly could, so much so that people would have to come begging for him if they needed gold to, uh, to settle a transaction. He needed gold to do overseas deals. Um, and the way, what he did here, uh, first person, it was just bribery all the way up and down the ladder. The government controlled the price of gold because the government sat on a lot of gold. If it wanted to drive the price down for uh, either political reasons or commercial reasons, it could just sell some gold into the market. Gold bought a bunch of gold on the assumption he could either bribe the government into letting the price run or he could convince the government to let the price run. Um, he gets involved with a, a son-in-law of, rather a brother-in-law of President Grant. He bribes him so that he gets an audience with Grant. Uh, he tries to bribe Grant, but Grant's incorruptible. So he didn't, he didn't, wasn't overt about it. Uh, then he bribes an assistant secretary of the treasurer to give him information on what the government was gonna do with gold. Then he bribes, um, one of his best friends to do some things to promote the price and take the fall. Then he bribes Boss Tweed, uh, the boss who, who ran New York City, to uh, bribe a bunch of judges to get Gould's friend off the hook for taking the fall. And it's just it's just corruption all the way up and down the line. And when the gold market blew up, it looked as if it was the end of Gould, but because no one was uh, able to to fight uh, Gould on this level of corruption. Gould was able to walk away, and so was uh, his co-conspirator in the scheme. And that's what 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 made Gould famous and made him hated during his day. Would he have thought it corrupt, or just this is the way we do business? And if I don't bribe Judge Smith, then someone else is going to bribe judge Smith. Yeah. I mean, in your book, it's like, I forget the exact name, but Vanderbilt had a judge and then that judge was no longer Vanderbilt's judge. And you have a quote that says, before you, before you hire a lawyer, hire a judge, which made me laugh out loud. 
was that just the way things were done and Gould was perhaps just better at it? He he would say, yeah, it's corruption. He would say, you know, it's bad. I don't like this, but it was how the game was played. You know, unfortunately, Grant goes down in history as a great general, but a horrible president, not because of his decision making, but because of um, who he surrounded himself by and all the all the corruption scandals that broke during his his presidency. Um, it, I don't know if it was the most corrupt time in American history, but it was the first time that there was so much money sloshing around that the amounts um, that were paid in bribes were were just enormous. Um, you know, Mark Twain wrote a book called The Gilded Age. That's where that term c- comes from. It's all about uh, different senators and others being bribed. It, it was just it was an open secret. Um, now you have to be smarter about how you do it. But but back then it was it was almost above board. The only way in New York State you could convict someone for bribery was if there was a third party who actually saw the money change hands. So if I bribed you, we're in a in a room just by ourselves. Um, one of us later confesses that money changed hands. That wouldn't hold up. Uh, they the New York legislature designed the law to make it almost impossible to prove bribery. What do you think Alexander Hamilton would have thought of this time period? Well, Hamilton was... um, Or Gould himself, perhaps? Yeah, well, I don't think he would would care much for Gould, but he might say, well, I sort of brought this on because Hamilton was a champion of big business. He was a, uh, a champion of of uh, businesses that cross state lines. He was a champion of the National Bank and all these things that uh, sort of came into being following the Civil War, I think Hamilton would have approved of. Um, And Gould, he might have dismissed as just, you know, a rotten apple, but uh, was just a unfortunate byproduct of a system that ultimately brings more good than bad. But as things progressed and things got worse and worse and the corruption elevated, uh, I'm sure Hamilton would have not been happy. Might have challenged him to a duel. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and Gould was what, five foot two? Yeah, five foot three. He was just short enough to, uh, he didn't have to buy his way out of the draft. He was short enough so he didn't qualify for military service. Is there irony in your mind? how he acted in his professional life, Jay Gould, as opposed to how he acted in his personal life and his marriage? I don't know if irony is the right word, but and it might be part of the same, same impulse. I think one reason Gould wanted to be really rich, besides the fact that he enjoyed making money, it was you know, something that he just did for fun, um, he wanted to protect his family. He grew up in very poor circumstances. His, his dad was a dairy farmer in upstate New York. His mom died when he was very young. The father was an alcoholic. Um, he had six older sisters, and they were really struggling. Um, Gould's father couldn't even hire a uh, anyone, a helper. He had to do everything himself. Um, and Gould wanted to save his own family from a similar fate. That's one of the things that motivated him. There's a show on HBO now called The Gilded Age, which is sort of a schmaltzy soap opera. But the the, the narrative tension in that comes from the effort of the, the leading family here to, uh, who is a nouveau riche Robert Durant family, to break into New York society and get invited to the, the balls of the Astors. Uh, you have a, a very cunning, ruthless businessman as the, the leading man in the story, the patriarch of the family, who is also a very loving and devoted family man. And that character is based not on Rockefeller or Carnegie, but on Jay Gould. So the, the producers of that show recognized the duality in Gould and saw that as an opportunity to create a drama. But his, his, he was married for a long time. Yeah. Decades. He had, I think, is it five children? Six. He had six. Six children. He and doted all, on them. He appeared to be 
someone who always wanted the best for them and, and fought for them. And obviously through his business connections is he was also, and I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned this. He was a non-drinker, never drank, thought it was evil or unholy for lack of a better term. Yeah. But do you think that he, let me ask this a different way. How do you think he reconciled in his mind, his somewhat, you know, um, Dr. Jekyll, tender personal life and personal decisions and family life with the Mr. Hyde ruthlessness of how he conducted business, especially against people he knew or people he didn't know. It didn't matter. He was ruthless regardless. Yeah. I uh, First on the temperance question, um, you know, his dad was an alcoholic. You know, that's, that's easy to explain. Uh, so he was a teetotaler. The I think like a lot of crooks, he he rationalized it in his own mind uh, somehow. And the way he, I think he did it was by saying, um, if if I don't get them, they're going to get me. So the people who were his victims were, um, were other, uh, other fat cats on Wall Street who were engaging in, in similar tactics. The, the way he got... Um, Let's see. The, the way he got the Western Union from Vanderbilt, you know, Vanderbilt owned it, then his son took over. Um, he did that by, uh, what did he do? He created the rival telegraph company, uh, originally with the help of Edison, and then by doing some other things. Once he owned a bunch of railroads, that gave him uh, control over a lot of Western Union's customers. He cut out Western Union and began using his own telegraph lines. That drove down the price of Western Union stocks. That that wasn't criminal, but it was it was bare knuckled, um, very nasty fight, and he was able to acquire Western Union for a cheap stock price. There he was. He wasn't trying to deprive widows and orphans of anything. He was trying to deprive the individual who at the time was the richest person in the country. Um, and a, a lot of his most nefarious acts took place when he was starting out. He was young, ambitious, um, maybe got some bad influence from, or bad advice from some of his friends. And again, if everyone else is committing bribery, what are you supposed to do if you want to compete at the highest levels? You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Greg Steinmetz, author of American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. If there's one sort of theme besides bribery, greed, malfeasance uh, that runs through your book, and it was very interesting to me because you, you were so far removed from it, and that is the the presence and the importance and the catalytic nature of railroads. Talk to us, please, a little bit about why and how railroads drove the economy, no pun intended, and at the same time, why they were so coveted by people like Jay Gould. Yeah, well, railroads are what brought the country together. And during the war, the fact that the U.S. had three to four times the, the railroad stock and, and tracks that the South had was decisive. Um, the, the best agricultural land, as we know, isn't in the, on the East Coast where the people live, but in the Midwest, in places like Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, um, the best land for grazing cattle. And the, uh, let's see, so what the railroads could do was provide a, an economical way to bring this stuff to market. Before the railroads came along, you had to pull things by horse, right? Or ship them by barge as far as you could, and then you pull them by horse. The railroads made it a lot cheaper. And you also had people from the East Coast trying to improve their lots by moving west, um, setting themselves up as farmers, and they needed a way to bring the stuff to market. 
So as in, you know, in our economy today, transportation infrastructure is vital to make the economy move. It was the same back then. And the, the railroads, as, as mentioned, it just cost a lot to build. You know, the Union Pacific was built uh, largely with, with federal subsidies. There just wasn't money in private hands to take on these, these massive projects. So if you look at the, the trading volume in the New York Stock Exchange in those days, most of it was railroad stocks and bonds because that was the one industry where you needed to come up with massive amounts of money. Years later, the United States was described by British Foreign Minister Sir Edward Gray as, quote, a gigantic boiler. There's no limit to how much heat it can produce once lit. Is this the beginning of the American industrial age in the sense that we started to feel our oats, pound our chest, and, and, and you know, brings out people like Theodore Roosevelt? The Industrial Revolution started in Britain, but we yeah. took it to another level in this time period. And did it produce men like Gould or did Gould and men like him push the Industrial Revolution? Well, I guess they're they're part and parcel of the same. But the the U.S. at the time, coming out of the Civil War, uh, the U.S. was not you know, the leader of the free world. Was not the leader in economic output. Um, there was concern that we were still regarded by Europe as a sort of a banana republic. Uh, Europe was very concerned that the U.S. was going to be able to pay back its war debt. Uh, most of or a lot of the money that came to build the railroads wasn't supplied by Americans. It was supplied by uh, British and uh, German, Dutch, French investors. They saw the U.S. as an emerging market. They wanted to be part of it. And as often happens when you're investing in emerging markets, you either hit it big or you lose everything. So those who invested in the New York Central with Vanderbilt did very good. Those who invested in the Erie with Gould did very poorly. Not that Gould did poorly, but his investors did. So we were we were getting to the point where the the cauldron, as you described, was was being uh, lit, but hadn't yet it wasn't yet fully cooked. That would come, you know, during World War One when we really proved ourselves. Your book has an amazing cast of characters. Let's go through some of them, please, a little bit, and maybe talk about their relationship with Gould and his with them. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore of someone most everyone has heard of, was he the richest man in the United States during this time? And, and how was he, how did he react to this young upstart, Jay Gould? He was the richest man at the time, and he initially thought you know, Gould was just some other young punk on Wall Street. Uh, then he came to realize uh, Gould was just played at a at a higher level, and he he absolutely hated Gould uh, by the end because Gould outsmarted him not once but twice but several times. He. When asked by a reporter in Syracuse one day who he thought was a, the best businessman out there, he said the smartest business person in the country is Jay Gould. And Rockefeller said the same thing. Uh, there's a story where Gould at the Erie Railroad and uh, Vanderbilt had the New York Central when Vanderbilt tried to destroy Gould in the price war. Uh, let's say it cost $100 to, to uh, ship something, a full boxcar full of now, cows from the Midwest, uh, for instance. If the price was $100, once the price were started, it went down to $75.50. Ultimately, Vanderbilt said, okay, to destroy gold, I'm going to take it down all the way to $1. What gold did was, all right, I, I can't stay in business with freight at $1, but what I can do is I can buy up a bunch of cows in Chicago and put them on Vanderbilt's cars, ship them to New York for free, and all that money that it was paying for shipping is now going to be my profit. And he made a ton of money. And when Bill found out, he was he was uh, having steam coming out of his ears. He was so upset. 
And every chance Gould got to to uh, tweak Vanderbilt, he did. The next person I want to ask you about was Ulysses S. Grant, who was president from 1869 to 1877. You mentioned, obviously, the victorious general for the North during the American Civil War. Was was President Grant just ill-equipped in your mind to handle everything that was going on in the financial markets? Either He was either too naive, too distracted, too trusting, whatever word you want to use, because his his presidency has been tarred by all the terrible financial dramas that took place during his eight years. Was it just the wrong man at the wrong time? Yeah, Grant's Grant's downfall was that he was too trusting. And his what happened with with Gould and him was Grant's um, Grant had a sister who was single at the time Grant was elected president and a a well-connected but crooked lobbyist got to know her. And uh, I suppose he loved her, but he also saw the advantage of of having, you know, being in the president's family. So he married her, got very close to Grant. Grant relied on him for insight into how Washington worked without realizing that this guy was completely corrupt. And he thought, you know, this guy's, this is what he must have thought. thought, This guy's my brother-in-law. You you don't betray family. Um, And yet he was betrayed. So yeah, it gets back to this point of him being, being trustworthy and ultimately seeing uh, probably having a, a sunnier outlook on humanity, despite what happened in the Civil War, than uh, maybe a president should. Mark Twain is probably, maybe more than probably, the foremost, foremost commentator on American life during this time period. He just had no use for people like Gould. How did how did Twain satirize him? Um, well, Twain, yeah. Uh, did Twain satirize him? He he satirized the age, right? And he drew inspiration from Gould's chicanery. Um, the there is a. a I wouldn't say a British version of Mark Twain, but uh, a novelist named Anthony Trollope, who took direct direct inspiration from Gould, where he he talks about a banker who dupes a bunch of British um, investors into buying a, a railroad in the country and then takes them down. Um, so yeah, Gould did serve as the inspiration for for some literary figures. Uh, like I said. Twain called Gould the mightiest disaster to ever befall this country. And Twain, it's it's interesting. He was he was very friendly with um, was it one of one of Rockefeller's top aides, who a guy who was corrupt in his own right, uh, but who gave good financial advice to Twain, who's otherwise a very poor businessman on his own. Uh, so if 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 you became friendly with Twain, he would give you a break. But if he didn't know you, he would, he would beat you up mercilessly. And that's what happened with him and Gould. Would you call J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller Gould's contemporaries? Or did they come after him by a few years and learned from Gould himself, no, they either were, either directly or indirectly. Yeah, no, they were contemporaries. Um, let's see, Vanderbilt. Uh, Gould was born in 1836. Carnegie was born in 1835. Right. Um, Vanderbilt was a generation older. Uh, Rockefeller. To Rockefeller made a lot of. He he became really rich after automobiles caught hold and people need a lot of gas. Um, in Gould's day, he wasn't yet the richest person. And if Gould had kept going, Gould died young. He was 56. Uh, Rockefeller lived until he was 93. If Gould had kept going and lived in 93, uh, there's a good chance he would have had more money than Rockefeller. And there were those, uh, 
the social critic Henry George among them who thought that if Gould wasn't the richest person when he died, he was on his way to becoming the richest. Um, you know, one thing I want to mention, and we've touched on it a little bit, what was really interesting to me was how uh, this was the same time that you know Jesse James was out west robbing banks and uh, sticking up uh, trains in Missouri. The, the Wild West was was alive and well out west, but it was the same thing was going on in Wall Street. Uh, Gold, but why I enjoyed writing the book so much and what made it easy to write uh, was that there was so much action. Uh, there, there's a scene where you know Gold. Um, is uh, you know has to fight back with guns to recover one of his factories. He's he's in the middle of a gunfight. There's there's a kidnapping. Uh, Gold's best friend is murdered. Another one gets a bomb thrown at him by an anarchist. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on there, <laughs> which in our sanitized world of of Wall Street, where like right now we're not talking face to face. Everything then. Um, it was person to person, live interaction, and uh, vigilante justice was was still in play even in New York City. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. That Wild West comparison I think is useful in understanding the gold story. The wild, wild east, perhaps. Yeah, for lack of a better term. What it was. I read a book in college. It's called The Myth of the Robber Barons. I think it was by a name Bert Folsom. American history professor. What is the myth in your mind? You don't have to speak to this book, obviously. What is the myth of the robber barons? And if you if you had to defend them, if your next book is, you know, American non-rascals, the robber barons of the 19th century, how would you defend them and their actions? Okay. Uh in answering the first question, you know, what a robber baron was, um, Back in the in medieval Germany, my, my first book was about a, a Renaissance banker named Jacob Fugger, who is from the same age of Christopher Columbus and da Vinci. Those were the real robber barons around the scene. They would be uh, impoverished uh, knights, barons, whatever they were, who would literally stand on their property line and and just rob anyone who tried to, to cross. Um, you know, and is, is that is that a useful metaphor for what the robber barons and, and the Gilded Age were doing? And I think it is because to the extent that what they did uh, amounted to everyone in the whole country paying more money for goods and services, it was similar to you know, that sort of course of extraction that the robber barons 500 years ago were doing. Um, but in their defense, well, let's see. In Gould's defense, he built more miles of railroad track than anyone. Um, and if you believe that railroads are what pulled the country together and built the country, then Gould did as much as anyone to make that happen. He employed a lot of people. He wasn't paying them top dollar. He would do what he can to pay them as little as possible. But he did uh, create a lot of jobs and made it possible for people to take care of themselves and feed their families. Um, so by, by unleashing this entrepreneurial energy, uh, you know, I found expression in the robber barons and it wasn't always pretty, but it did, uh, it did build the country and, you know, create the, the fruits we now enjoy. So that would be my defense. One of the things that comes out, we have a few more minutes with Greg Steinmetz, author and journalist. Um, he wrote American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. Towards the end of your book, when Rockefeller and Carnegie and, and others are starting to really become more prominent, there's a little bit of a discussion that I found interesting about the nature and the importance of philanthropy and how a lot of the other industrialists and extremely wealthy Americans deemed it proper to give away their money. How did, why did they do that? You think, why do you think that mindset took place and what was Gould's attitude toward it? Gould's attitude toward it. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of reasons people 
you can do a couple of things with your money if you're really rich. One one is you you, know, you can just give it to your kids, and or you can just give it all away. Uh, Warren Buffett has a thing called the Giving Pledge, where you pledge to give half of all your money, at least half all your money, when you die, to philanthropy. Uh, Ted Turner and some others, Bill Gates, have agreed to this. Buffett certainly has. Uh, that wasn't Buffett's idea. It was Carnegie's idea. Carnegie didn't like the idea of uh, family wealth perpetuating itself. Um, I think he was also looking to you know, do good works. And whether it was to save his soul or not, uh, that does enter into the thinking of some people who give it all away. Uh, maybe he felt guilty about how he, how he got it, so he gave it away. Uh, Gould, I would say that Gould didn't feel that way because that's not what Gould did with his money. When he died, it, it passed to his children. It was divided equally between all of them. When um, when uh, when Vanderbilt died, he gave it all to his children, but he gave 95% of it to his oldest son because he wanted to keep the corpus of his empire intact. Uh, that was another way of doing it. But I think Gould might have given more money away had he had he lived longer, but he didn't. If, if you look at when the reason people remember Vanderbilt, the reason they remember Carnegie and Rockefeller is because they put their names on things. Uh, down the street from my office here in New York, we got we got Carnegie Hall. You go down the other direction, we have <laughs> Rockefeller Center. <laughs> Rockefeller Center, they broke ground on that when when John D was still alive. And then of course you got Vanderbilt University which if you watch SEC football games, you see them Vanderbilt scroll across your screen every Saturday afternoon during football season. Gould didn't do that because he died when he was 56 years old. These other guys didn't do any of this stuff until they were in their 70s. So had Gould lived longer, I think there would have been, he might've taken such an action. New York University was negotiating with him for for a large gift, uh, and maybe New York University would now be called Gould University had he not died so young. Gould had many close calls in his empire days, and he used various methods and, and demonstrations of intelligence to get through these scrapes. But in his last one, which you describe in your book, all I could think of is, is Jay Gould's empire the first example of too big to fail? He, the, the episode you describe was, there was a time when, when Gould was over leveraged, meaning he, he had more debt than what was prudent. And even though he owned stock in a lot of different companies, if the value of that stock fell too much, uh, he wouldn't have enough money to to pay off the debt. And he was caught in that situation at one moment. So he confronted his creditors and said, well, you can either give me a pass here and we can renegotiate the debts, or I'm going to declare bankruptcy. And he pulled a document out of his pocket saying, okay, here's my bankruptcy petition. I've already signed it. I'm going to walk this over to the courthouse and declare bankruptcy. But as you know, if I do that, the whole market's going to fall out of bed, that they're going to see just a wave of selling of all my stocks, and that's going to create panic among everyone. So whatever you have invested in the market is going to get trashed too. So take your pick. If you really want to destroy me, go ahead, but you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot too. So yes, uh, I would say you're, you're correct in saying that. He was too big to fail. Or at least he he got people to to believe that he was. And in those he, days, he certainly didn't have you know any government intervention to to protect uh, the markets from such things. Will you describe in your book the collapse of the the firm Grant and Ward and how that triggered all sorts of adverse economic and financial conditions? But I would imagine that would have been just a a blip on the screen compared to Gould's failing. If he had done so, yeah, yeah, that's probably right. Um, because the you know the Grant and Ward story is is just a horrible story. There you had Grant's son uh, becoming a business partner with a crook, 
and Grant's son going to President Grant and saying, hey, do you want to bank this, uh, this business for me? So the crook was able to use the, the name of Grant to raise even more money, which he then tried to pocket for himself. And then the whole scheme blew up and it was, um, you couldn't imagine anything more embarrassing for Grant. Um, in Gould's case, yeah, so the market, there was a shutter after that one. Uh, but Gould was a giant at the time that had he gone under. In 1873, you had the the then most influential man on Wall Street, a guy named Jay Cook. He was influential because he was the one who raised the money for the union to fight the Civil War. His banking house was the Goldman Sachs of its day. He went bankrupt uh, because of a, a failed railroad scheme. And his bankruptcy caused a panic on Wall Street. A lot of people got wiped out. That caused what was called the Long Depression, which lasted from 1873 to 1879, six years. It was the deepest depression that the country ever had until the Great Depression. And that was brought about by the failure of one individual. So Gould could have caused the same thing had things gone the other way. Last question before we get to the five questions we ask all of our guests. On his deathbed, he died of, I don't know, he died of tuberculosis. But for some reason, I find the term consumption just more enthralling for whatever reason anyway that's how he died uh, on his deathbed would you say that in your opinion jay gould was full of more pride for what he had accomplished and left for his family or full of more remorse for how he accomplished it and how he treated others there is no evidence that he felt any remorse uh, nor do i he might have been proud, but I think he was anxious when he died uh, that he didn't do enough to lay the groundwork for his children. He would have liked to have more time to work with them so that they could make wiser financial decisions. Um, the only one he really worked closely with was his oldest son, although that didn't work very well. He he turned out to be not such a great businessman. So I, th I think that's what was going on in Gould's head when he died with that I'm still worried about my family, uh, and I wish I had done more to to make sure that they wouldn't uh, suffer any hardship. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Greg Steinmetz, are you ready? Okay, let's do it. First question, what was your first job? Um, my first job out of high school was writing advertising copy for a department store in Cleveland, uh, Higby's. Higby's is its claim to fame as every department store in the movie, The Christmas Story. And I would write ads for them. And everyone had to say, you know, save $5, save $10. It was all about <laughs> reminding people that this item was on sale today. Wasn't a lot of creativity. So I got out of that one. Second question. What was your first concert? Uh, I saw Todd Rundgren, Ted Nugent, and Fleetwood Mac at Cleveland Stadium in 1978, I believe. It's not a bad yeah. triple bill. It was good. Ted Nugent's the only concert I've ever gone to where I finally just had to leave because it was too loud. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Uh, one of my favorite books is Confederacy of Dunces. Do you know that one? Um, it's It's got to be about the, the funniest book that I've ever come across. It, it's about sort of a ne'er-do-well in New Orleans and his efforts to uh, you know, just get through the day. Um, and then, you know, I just... I just listened recently again. I read it a long time ago. Uh, that Confederacy of Dunces, by the way, was written by a guy named John Kennedy Toole. Mm -hmm. And he died without having published it. And his mom found the manuscript in, in his desk drawer and brought it to a publisher. It's an incredible story. Um, so, yeah, I, I read it a long time ago. Conf uh, Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. Wolf. Listen to it again. And the... The audible version of this book with the voices they do, uh, it, 
it, it just made that experience so much better. It's just a hilarious book. So those are two you know, sort of humorous novels. I think the best book of nonfiction that is uh, The Power Broker, Robert Moses, and all his uh, Lyndon Johnson books. Johnson comes off as a, not like an animal, but I can't think of another word for it, yeah. for him. Yeah. Fourth yeah. question. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh, I thought it was multiple choice. Uh, I would like to see, I would like to see Jesus in action. So whether that be the Sermon of the Mount or any other of, of the great stories from the New Testament, I'd like to see what he was really like. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Living today. Huh. Um, I suppose someone really fun, like, uh, I don't know, Keith Richards, Bruce Springsteen, someone like that. You make them sing for their supper? I uh, know. Well, if that's part of the deal. <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Greg Steinmetz, author of American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. It is a terrific read, even for someone like me who got poor grades in economics. Uh, Greg, really what he does, as much as detailing Gould's life, is he sets the broader picture, the theater of everything that was going on during this time period, not only really in American history, but also in European history. Thank you, Greg, very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. It's fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.